Welcome back to Humble Perspectives with Steve Humble. Wow. Chapter 14, which I read last week, was a mouthful, wasn't it? Many of the ideas and the teachings that I discussed in that chapter were not only issues that I was chewing on back then, in that time period, but they are things I still ponder on and long to understand and to experience more fully today. One of the things about the age to come that I look forward to is that we will be able to continue learning because our God is infinite in His knowledge and understanding and we will be getting to know Him and His thoughts more fully through endless ages. I hope you were able to endure and are still willing to keep listening. I especially pray that young listeners, listeners including my grandchildren, will receive what I read like kingdom seed that in God's time will germinate and become for them truth to live by in the days ahead. There are biblical ideas in that chapter that I hope some will be exploring for their lifetime and applying them because they relate to the world and we need, the church needs, to learn how to live by them. Please bear with me today if my voice struggles because of allergies as I read more about our life in community in the much shorter chapter, chapter 15, titled Expanding Household. Establishing the Free Church Fellowship was an important part of my work from 1979 through 1983. As I led the fellowship, I was forced to begin to organize the changes in my understanding of the church, its beliefs, and its practices, changes that had been developing over the previous 10 years. Forming the Free Church Fellowship also provided the opportunity for me to learn more about how to develop a leadership team. As it turned out, although we did not know it at the time, we were building relationships in the Free Church Fellowship that would prove to be far more significant than we could have imagined at that time. However, the focus of my life was not on the Free Church Fellowship. Life in the Servants of the Lord community was full. And what a wonderful life it was, rich in the awareness of God at work among us, rich in friendships, and rich in learning and growth. Life in Christian community was spiritual, but not religious. Yes, we were active in prayer, worship, and evangelism, and we had great gatherings and teaching full of wisdom for living as God's people. However, just as important, we cultivated the awareness that our normal daily activities were just as spiritual as the distinctive, re, distinctively religious activities. Our family life was unto the Lord. Our neighborhood life was unto the Lord. Our recreation was unto the Lord. The distinction between sacred and secular all but disappeared in many ways. We were aware that God desired to be involved in every aspect of our individual lives and in our life together. Even as I write these words, I realize that I'm writing truthfully and yet the story is incomplete. My experience of community in Patricia's has not been quite the same. In the summer of 1980, Patricia and I made an offer on another house. Elijah was nearly eight years old and Stephanie was three. They needed separate bedrooms. 
We also needed a larger home in which to practice hospitality and to host meetings more easily. An older two-story house went up for sale on First Avenue about five blocks from our apartment building. A few other families had bought homes in the next block. Some single women lived in an apartment on that block as well. It was a good area in which to buy since houses were mostly in good condition and were affordable for first-time home buyers. Mary Alberts had seen the house first and had suggested that we look at it. Because we not, did not have enough money to make the financial commitment alone, he suggested that we ask Tanya Sabellin, a single sister who happened to be Russian Orthodox, to co-sign on our loan. The white clapboard two-story house, though not exceptionally fancy, had been well taken care of. It was solidly built and seemed lovely to us. Tanya agreed to co-sign, and so we made an offer, and it was accepted. We had not said anything about looking at the house to anyone else, in part because we had made the decision to look for a house quite quickly, but also because we did not want to unsettle the others who owned apartments in our building until we were more certain that we were actually going to move. Patricia and I had made the decision with no great show of emotion. We had walked through the house and both liked it well enough. But neither one of us said much about our feelings even when we made the decision to make an offer. To me, it just seemed like the next step. I don't think either one of us realized the cost of moving until we came back to the apartment after the sellers had accepted the offer. It was mid-afternoon when we parked behind our building and entered through the back door into the back stairway. As we started up the six stairs from the landing to our apartment, Patricia shouted out, Anita! Mary Kay! As usual, the doors were open to Dan and Anita Rosner's apartment next door to ours and to Dan and Mary Kay Gleason's apartment upstairs. They ran down the halls into the stairwell in response to Patricia's unusual behavior, perhaps worried that there was some emergency. We bought a house, Patricia exclaimed, and, and she paused. When she spoke again, her voice had changed. It was muted and mournful. And we're going to move. She began to cry. There I was with three women, all of them crying and laughing at the same time. We more fully realized the significance of that moment over the next few months. Up to that time, Patricia had lived in community faithfully, out of her commitment to the Lord and to me, her husband. Living in community, however, had not been her personal choice. At times, she dealt with some disappointment about not going to, into missions. Sometimes, in her words, her heels left skid marks because of fear and reluctance, especially in the earliest years. After the incident with Mary Kay and Anita, we gradually discovered that Patricia had come to rest and peace in the place that God had placed us. The best way I can describe the change is that Patricia began to act like she was at home once she realized she really did have sisters in the Lord. She had sisters whom she could count on, sisters who knew her, who loved her, and she had sisters with whom she could work through the difficult times. Although we rarely see the Rosners or the Gleasons these days, the relationships are solid, and when we're able to get together, it seems like we only need to catch up on details about our lives. Since our community was organized geographically, most of the close relationships we made were with those who lived nearby. Sometimes we lived near people to whom we would not have been naturally drawn for friendships, and 
There were often rough spots in learning to know and to tr trust each other. Yet sometimes the relationships we had to build by working through things became the most deep and solid. I think that I learned something from all this. Men, it seems to me, often enter into a commitment such as ours to the servants of the Lord community because of a vision, a sense of call, and a decision. I know I've done so. Afterward, it's the commitment to God's call that's held me in place through the inevitable times of testing and even disillusionment. Not all men hold their places in the difficult times, but they often can be strengthened when they are reminded of their call. Patricia, on the other hand, and many other women, in my experience, may come into a commitment less because of their personal sense of call and more because of their commitment to their husbands. But if the woman's relationship with her husband is relatively healthy, once sisterhood has been established among the women, they seem able to make a home, to come to a sense of rest and peace. Just as the wife often sets the tone in the home, I think it's usually the women who set the tone for life in the community. When most of the women are, quote, at home, unquote, when they are at rest in their relationships, especially, the community tends to have a sense of peace and order. But when even a few women are insecure or disgruntled or cliquish, the whole community may experience a sense of unrest. To the degree that this is an accurate assessment, then it's important for the leaders of a group as well as for the husbands to do all they can to foster healthy sisterly relationships among the women in the group. The tone of the group, which is so influenced by the women, can be an important gauge of the health health of a community. The importance of women in the life of a Christian community may well be one of the reasons that St. Paul gave specific instructions several times concerning women, even beyond the relationship between husband and wife. The New Testament specifically addresses women's participation in community meetings, and it addresses their daily life and, and relationships as well. Consider such passages as 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 2. Whether or not this digression about women is helpful or not, it was a good thing for Patricia to find her place in the community. Had it not come about, it might have been more difficult for us to enter into a full co covenant with the community a few months later. Surprise! As with the house on which we made an offer in St. Paul, we did not end up purchasing this one either. We really liked that house, but the more we thought it through, the more we realized that it was actually inadequate for all that we needed to do. In it, we would not have been able to have separate bedrooms for Elijah and Stephanie and still expand our household to include more single adults. And it would not have been adequate for the ministry of hospitality that we desired to do. Therefore, we backed away, and Tanya bought the house herself. It became a wonderful home for several single ladies. A year or two later, Tanya and some other women made it the base for a sisterhood, a group of women committed to remain single and celibate in order to serve God and the community with less distractions. During the time when we were looking at the house, Patricia and I were preparing to enter into a full covenant relationship with the Servants of the Lord community. We had finished the mandatory courses by that time, and we had also clearly demonstrated our willingness to share fully in the committed life of the Servants members. 
Patricia's realization that she had built true relationships with the sisters in our building was an important indication that we were ready to publicly commit ourselves to live the rest of our lives as members of the servants of the Lord. On the appointed evening, we, along with several others, participated in a public ceremony in which we were received and prayed for by the covenant members. Several years previously, the Servants of the Lord Covenant had been prayerfully and carefully written down by the coordinators and then had been approved by all the covenant members. Therefore, in addition to a public statement of our commitment, we also signed the covenant document as well. While I had been studying biblical covenants, I had come to the conviction that there is only one central relationship that God has established with all those who are in Christ and are members of Christ. That is, the new covenant. So I had wondered, is this covenant for the servants legitimate? What's its nature? Is there a biblical basis for it? Clearly, the servants of the Lord covenant had to be subordinate to the new covenant. Eventually, I come to the conclusion that the Servants of the Lord Covenant was indeed legitimate. I saw that it was similar to the covenant of renewal made during Josiah's range, reign, 2 Kings 23, 1-25, 2 Chronicles 34, 14-33, and even more similar to the one made under Nehemiah and Ezra's leadership in Nehemiah 8-10, in which people made specific pledges to obey parts of God's covenant with Israel which they had flagrantly disobeyed. Our covenant with the servants of the Lord was a commitment to a specific household of faith that was seeking to rebuild a way of life together consistent with the new covenant. Certainly, we needed to guard against becoming exclusive and prideful in a way that would be a barrier to our fellowship with the whole of God's new covenant people. But that covenant must be lived out in a tangible way in actual functioning relationships our commitment to support ecumenism, both within the community and among the churches or denominations, also called us to have a humble, serving attitude. I'm going to pause here, and from Appendix 5 in my book, I'm going to read The Servants of the Lord Covenant. This is what we committed ourselves to. We have been called by God to be a holy and righteous people, a nation, a family, a servant people set apart for his purpose. He has called us individually and personally, and through his grace and his Holy Spirit has transformed us and joined us together as community. Our response to his call is made through aspiring to personal holiness and perfection while entering into and strengthening our relationships with our spouses, families, and brothers and sisters in the Servants of the Lord community. Our covenant is first and foremost with God, and then in accordance with His plan and the teaching of the Holy Spirit with our brothers and sisters in the servants of the Lord community. And here are these references from the scripture, Isaiah 42, 6-7, Acts 2, 42-47, Philippians 2, 1-18. And then there will be scriptures following the specific elements or articles of the covenant. In response to these words expressing God's call to unity, humility, and servanthood, I covenant myself to God and to the servants of the Lord community and pledge to live a life of service to God and the establishment of his kingdom. Exodus 19, 3-8, Philippians 1, 3-4. 
3 to 6. To constantly seek to perfect my praise to the glory of the Lordship of Jesus Christ through the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 8, Revelation 4, 11, 5, 12, 7, 9 and following. To pray regularly, to celebrate as the Lord leads and to study and read scripture as the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. 2 Timothy 3.16 To serve and care for the brothers and sisters whom the Lord calls to the community. Romans 12.10 and 13. Galatians 6.10 To accept and support the ongoing authority, order, and patterns of life of the community. For example, its structure, its ecumenism, and its mission. Hebrews 13.17 Philippians 2 To meet with the community whenever it gathers. Hebrews 10.25 To support the community spiritually, emotionally, physically, materially, and financially. Acts 2.42-47 2 Corinthians 9.6-15 I recognize that while relocation or departure is a possibility with community discernment, my commitment to the servants of the Lord is one of life, love, and service. Matthew 28.18-20 Matthew 22:37-39. I want to publicly accept the covenant our Heavenly Father is offering and promise to live it out as a member of the servants of the Lord. And to that, Patricia and I each signed our name. You will notice that in the last article, or the last, one of the last statements says, I recognize that while relocation or departure is a possibility with community discernment, my commitment to the servants of the Lord is one of life, love, and service. We did not understand at that point that relocation or departure statement would become important in our lives. Now back to the book. Since Patricia and I were putting down our roots in the community a few months after backing away from the house on First Avenue, we began to hunt actively for another house. This time we were looking for one that would accommodate several single adults as well as our family. We had experienced household of a certain sort among those living in the apartments in our building, but we had also had the opportunity to have single adults be a part of our own household after the Dreesen family moved. For about a year, we were blessed to have Wanda Chaplin and Margie Graber share our home while they were preparing for marriage to men in the community. Not long after their weddings, Joe Hagens and Jay Rosengren moved in with us. We found that we enjoyed extended household life. Therefore, we began to look for a house big enough to accommodate our family and several adults. We looked at quite a number of houses in the spring of 1981 until we find, found one at 4003 Pillsbury Avenue, only three blocks away from our apartment building. It was right across the street from David and Deanna White's household. We knew we would have some good neighbors because the Whites had moved from Grand Forks. Our family had related to their household there and they had led the first men's group and women's group that Patricia and I had participate in. participated in. The house, a story and a half brick built about 1905, had a few drawbacks. The biggest one being that it was not light filled, as Patricia would have preferred. 
There was barely more than a driveway's width between our house and the houses on either side. A large Dutch elm in the small front yard and a sun porch and another small room built across the front of the house blocked direct light from the living room. Small windows above a built-in buffet in the dining room allowed only a little sunlight into that room. The abundant woodwork was all stained dark and the walls were dingy with old paint. In spite of the lack of light, we saw that the house would work nicely for household. The living room and dining room were L-shaped, plenty large for enough for small group meetings and a large dinner table. I could use the small room in front for my office, even though it would be hard to heat in the Minnesota winters since it was surrounded on two sides by windows. The upstairs would serve nicely for our family quarters. There was a very small room across the front where we could put little Stephanie and two larger bedrooms, one for Elijah, the other for Patricia, and for me. Both of these rooms had doors in the rear leading into a walk-through closet, behind which there was a large bathroom. There were two bedrooms and another bathroom on the first floor, quite suitable to house single ladies, and the basement, though unfinished, was dry and large enough for us to build another bedroom and a bathroom for single men. By today's standards, the price was low only $67,000. Still, it was a huge amount for us at that time. Interest rates had risen well above 10% at that point, so the mortgage payment would be large. We were able to sell our 25% interest in the apartment building to another young couple for $7,500, just enough to cover a down payment and closing cost on a $62,000 loan. Still, our income of $1,000 per month was far too small to qualify us for a loan on our own. However, we were not on our own. We were in community. Thus, Randy Smith, a young single electrician who had been living with Larry's brother Dave Alberts and his family, agreed to co-sign with us for a loan and to move into our household. When we applied for the loan in April, the interest rate on a 30-year mortgage from the Federal Housing Authority was 13.5%. By the time the loan was approved in late May, the rate had risen to 15.5%, plus the 0.5% that the FHA was adding back then to protect investors who supplied the loan money. Our monthly payment would be $809, a huge sum to us, nearly four times what we'd been paying for our share in the apartment building. What's more, we found out that less than $9 of the first month's payment would go toward the principal. Thankfully, our realtor, a brother in the community, not only brought the amortization schedule for 30 years to the closing, but he also told us that if we were to pay only $35 per month extra on the principal, we would be able to pay the loan off in 20 years instead of 30. And if we were to pay $80 per month extra on the principal, he said that we would pay it off in 15 years. Because of this simple encouragement, we always, from there on, sought to pay extra each month toward the principal on our home loans. Not only on that house, but on the two we have purchased since then. We moved into 4003 Pillsbury Avenue South on June, in June of 1981. Within a few weeks, we had six single brothers and sisters sharing our home. Besides Randy, there was were Jay Rosengren, who moved with us from the apartment building, 
Jeff Gleason, whose mother and grandmother lived on the very same block as the house, Jacqueline Johnson, Joyce Wilhelm, and Diane Seaver, who was engaged to be married later that year. Each adult member of the house contributed a set amount to the household fund to cover his or her share of our common living expenses. We lived as one big family. I was the head of the household with final authority on things pertaining to our shared life. Patricia managed most details pertaining to the care of the house and the meals, and she was directly responsible for the pastoral care of the sisters. I worked with Patricia when needed in caring for the sisters, and I gave pastoral care to the men. Although some households in the community handled their finances differently than we did, Patricia and I thought that since Randy had co-signed with us on the loan, then his name should be on the deed as owner with one-third interest in the house. This arrangement worked well. Randy's sense of ownership, as well as his heart to serve, led him to move aggressively to build the men's bedroom and bath in the basement. Randy was not only an electrician, but had all the building skills needed, whereas I had nearly none. By late August 1981, he and the other brothers had all but finished the basement room. However, by that time, our community was experiencing a tragic division that would affect our household. Chapter 14 stops here with this cliffhanger about division. I will share more about that in chapter 17. However, in the next chapter, I'll be sharing mostly about new opportunities for service and learning that I had in the early 1980s while we were enjoying our life in that household. God bless you. Have a great week.